0: Amen. Well, welcome, Urban Grace. Uh, my great pleasure to deliver God's Word to you this morning. It's always ever only about a relationship with God. Some of you may have come here this morning, no matter where you're from, whether you're part of Urban Grace, and you forget this simple fact that you think or you've gotten into a habit or routine where your spiritual life exists on what you do for God. If we're doers, if you're a fixer, if you're one of those people, you're the practical person, you probably have a tendency toward thinking of your relationship with God as a boss, someone you do something for. If you've never heard of Christianity, and if you're unfamiliar with the tenets of Christianity, you may or may not have this proclivity towards religion which is, it's about what you do for God. This morning's text, although very ancient, although I regard these kinds of texts as the kinds of ones whereby we have to blow the dust off because it's unlikely that you have these kinds of texts on your coffee mugs or engraved on the front of your Bible Or a journal that you've been given over Christmas that has, you know, uh, the Sons of Jorah 112. These are texts that take a while to get into. I understand that. But it still shows us that it's always been about relationship with God. That Christianity, which was birthed out of the Hebrew Jewish culture, Jesus was Jewish Hebrew heritage, He had a lineage in this. This is always about a relationship with God first and foremost. And we're going to see a couple of things in our text this morning. We're going to see that this is actually uh, a priority for the people and the writer of this particular book, although he could have written a lot of different ways and he could have established some historical things in a very unique way. He, He chose specific things to write about. And he wanted us to grasp that as the people began to rebuild their spiritual lives, priority number one was their relationship with God. It wasn't about what they did for God. It wasn't about rebuilding the things that God wanted them to do. It wasn't even ultimately about just pure obedience like, I obey. It was about something in their hearts that said, this is about a relationship with God. And then we're also going to see in the text two responses, and I think we're going to be able to have an opportunity for either one of these responses, depending on your personality and your type, depending on if you're a glass half-full or a glass half-empty kind of person. already be thinking about that. What's your tendency here? You know, some of us are glass half-full, excuse me, scratch that from the video, glass half-full. Meaning there there should be more, or there should be less, or there could be more, or there could be less, depending on what you think. I want to take you through a little bit of the background to catch you up to speed if you're brand new to Urban Grace and this particular uh, series. It's called Remnant, which is a word that the Bible uses. We don't use that a lot, but it basically means a small amount of people. I think this is important for us to get because even though the numbers look a lot larger than ours, there still is this sense in comparison with what it once was, we're talking a very small amount of people that are involved in this rebuilding process. In 587 BC, a neighboring king decided he wanted to conquer Israel, uh, ultimately Jerusalem, and he destroyed the centerpiece of the Jewish faith. The temple. The temple represented the glory, the holiness, the awesomeness, the connection, and ultimately the presence of God in the community. That's what it symbolized. When Israel looked toward the temple, what they saw was actually that God is in our midst. God is with us. God is present. In fact, when the Bible describes Jesus who comes in the form... He is God, comes in the form of man. He he is described as God templing with us, tabernacling with us, meaning his presence comes in a human form. But until then, the image that all Jews, all Israel, all Hebrews would have is that the temple represents God is here, he is established. You can imagine what that meant when some neighboring king who thought he was the king of the world at the time... Leo DiCaprio had it all wrong. Nebuchadnezzar thought he was the king of the world. He comes in, he destroys the temple, he burns it, he takes all of the special things that meant symbolically everything to these Jews. He takes them for himself. You can imagine what this meant to the Israelites. This total depression. I mean, there's some people that would have literally just kinda of looked and went, well, there's no reason for living. How could someone just come and take away God's presence from us? And so, essentially, for, for many, for many Jews, they never recovered from this. But God did this because he wanted to show them, I am not simply a building. This is about relationship with me. And I'll remove the building as a disciplinary act toward you in order that I can get your attention and remind you that this is about a relationship with me, not about a building. Churches still get this wrong. We still think of church as a place. We still think of it as a building. The word church is not a building. It means congregation. That's why we can meet in a gym and call it a church. Because it's not about a building. It's about a person, Jesus Christ, God become man, who provided a way in relationship to God. That's what it's always about. That's why we state it first, that we're about the gospel. That's why we say immediately, instructions to every music leader, every announcement person, say Jesus first, please, or you're fired. Because it's about Jesus first, always. Why? Because it's always Jesus who provides us a relationship with God, and that's primary to us. That we don't want you to hear anything else if you can't first hear that this is about a relationship with the God of the universe. Now, Ezra's one of these guys. He's a historian. He liked to write things down. He liked to teach the law of God. And so he wrote a book aptly named after himself... And he recorded in a very specific way some of these events. Now Ezra wasn't there at the time. And so what we have from Ezra chapter 1 to chapter 6 is you have like a flashback. You have Ezra going back and recounting something to present day. By the time we hit the seventh chapter of Ezra, we'll get into Ezra's present day. So he's alive and well in doing things. That's why it's kind of like he, he's a little standoffish and trying to retell the story in a very specific way. Ezra and Nehemiah are books that have for a long, long time in Bible history been connected together. Only very recently have they ever been separated. So if you want a clear picture of what's going on, read those two books together. Actually, there's a little video that's been put. What's what's it called? You sent me a link once. uh, The Bible Project Project and uh, Scripture Speaks, I think. Uh, runs through these together and shows you that this is one big story together. And so in some ways, we have to kind of know that uh, going in. Then what happens, to catch you a little bit up to speed, next slide, please, I want to show you uh, a map. Who doesn't love a map? And welcome to the 1990s with a laser pointer. You're welcome. Okay, here's Jerusalem. What happens when they, oh, I'm nervous, look at me shake. Um, What happens originally is Jerusalem gets sacked and destroyed, and exiles come this way. They didn't take everyone, they took The best of the best. They took those and basically gave them Babylonian scholarships. Uh, They they equipped them. They educated them. They gave them the best education possible. Of course, it was in Babylonian language and Babylonian customs and Babylonian religion. So it was kind of a propaganda way uh, of, of basically saying, yeah, we'll help you excel in society. We'll just, you do it our way. Hoping that they get this idea that over time they just forget their religion and become Babylonian totally backfires because God says, uh, I want Persia now to take over Babylon, and so 70 years later, he has a neighboring country who also thinks he's Leo DiCaprio and the king of the world, and he now takes over Babylon and says, as his first, one of the first things that he does, hey... If you are Jewish and you feel like you want to go back to your hometown and reestablish your relationship with your God, you're free to do so if whoever's heart is stirred. That's chapter one. Chapter two is a list of all the people that went. Not all of them did. The reason why not all of them did is they had become quite comfortable in what they were doing and they had been quite established and they had been obedient to God in doing so. God actually instructed them. I don't want you to just live on the suburbs of Babylon. I want you to get right into the city. I want you to invest in the city. I want you to bless the city. Read Jeremiah 29 if you want help on that. And then 70 years later, he says, now I want you to come back. And I want you to build my city. Now in chapter 3, what happens is this is essentially the first things that actually happened with the rebuilding process. Let me read this out for you. Ezra chapter 3. If you need a Bible, raise your hand, and one of our ushers would love to bring you a Bible. If not, turn in your app there and follow along, or just listen as I read. When the seventh month came, and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. I want to stop there and just quickly explain this. The seventh month is the pinnacle. It's like April or March for Christians. Like everything big kind of happens in those times. Maybe Christmas, depending on what you like. The people gathered as one man, not like as a single person, but they had one mindset here. They're all on the same page. And then rose Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak. He's the high priest. He's in charge of everything spiritual with his fellow priests. And Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, with his kinsmen, that's the king or the civic leader of what's going on. You're seeing the leadership take uh, precedence here. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They are obedient to the original way. That sacrifices were established within their religion. They set the altar in its place. For fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord. Burnt offerings morning and evening. This would be in compliance with the law of Moses. And they kept the Feast of Booths. I'd love to revisit the Feast of Booths. That sounds great. They built huts and celebrated God's goodness. How cool does that sound, guys? Like, let's go build cabins in the wilderness, and like, for seven days, let's talk how good God is. I mean, sounds like hipsters all over the world's ears perked up when you say that. As it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, and the offerings at the new moon, and all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a free will offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. That's key. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians, and this is one of my favorite parts, to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. There were lumberjacks in the day. Now in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel and Jeshua, the son of Jozadak J- made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. That was the qualifying age for the Levite. Levite is someone who is born into uh, the priesthood, born into special service. You, You literally couldn't choose to be a Levite. You were or you weren't based upon your lineage. But you had to be 20 years old to serve. So that's all that was. Just qualifying for actual leadership. They were very careful to obey God as they did these things. And Jeshua with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Hanadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments or their garments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, the bands, showed up with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to God, thanks to the Lord. And they said something that would have been so common to every Jew. It's basically the mantra of anyone who loves God, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping, for the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. Fascinating. We have two parts to this text. The first part is the rebuilding of the altar, which I say is the priority of reestablishing true worship of Israel's God, Yahweh. And the second half, which is a little bit later in time, we're not sure exactly how long it was between these two, but it was after, it was later where we have just the start, the foundations, the cribbers, so to speak, in construction language, show up. And everyone, well, not everyone. Everyone yells, but some have reasons positively and negatively. Some were glass half full, some were glass half empty. So let's go through this text together. A couple of extra things that we want to see, especially when it comes to the first half, the first seven verses. You can switch the slide there for me wide if you want. This is about priorities. This is about priorities. Remember when I said uh, the temple, or the foundation of the temple was not yet laid? Uh, What that means is that uh, the, the temple is all about how to worship properly. And, and in order to worship properly, we have to do some kind of background. We talk about burnt offerings and sacrifices. The temple was where you rightly did this. And within the temple, there was a special part called the altar, whereby you brought your sacrifice and a priest on your behalf, offered your sacrifice for, on your behalf for the forgiveness of your sins. They had a, they had a special way of doing this. It was very symbolic, and this, if you're aware of what Christianity is all about, this kind of will make a little bit of sense to you, but if not, hang with me for a second. What you would do is basically saying, I have sinned, I have disobeyed God, and, and disobedience separates us from God. So in order to regain the friendship with God, the relationship with God, someone's going to have to pay for your sins. You say, that sounds weird for us, but we in our, when someone does something wrong for us, have you ever found yourself wanting to go, someone's going to pay for this? Right? When you see something negative or you see something tragic happen to someone else, even when someone else gets abused, what happens inside of you? You say, somebody's going to pay for this. Well, this is exactly what God is trying to explain through this sacrifice is someone will pay for this. Well, who? Well, someone's got to. He chose not to make other humans pay for it. He said, if you gather a perfect bull for me, place your hand upon that bull's head, and in essence, transfer your sin onto that bull, then that bull will go and will pay the penalty for you. It's an innocent bull. It didn't do anything wrong. Yes, but someone has to pay for it. And so it's a way of symbolically showing us how holy God is, how other God is, how much he can't stand disobedience. I know this is the hard part of our concept of God that we don't like. And where do you do that? You do that in the temple, but ultimately you do that on an altar. And what happens then is, is you can see loophole Larry. You can just see him just seething going, okay, well, if I have to kill a bull, I'm going to kill, like, my weak bull. Like the one who doesn't really pull when there's four of them, you know. The bull who has, a, like, a lame leg that is like, ah, oh, he's useless anyways, right? It's like the lemon of bulls, right? You can see loophole Larry going, well, I'll just give the lemon of bulls. That's why God said, no, loophole Larry, gotcha. You have to give your best bull." The lead bull, the best one you can find, the healthiest, one-year-old, in its prime. This avoided people just sacrificing to God, basically to say, well, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll economically get rid of something that's not that valuable anyways, plus I'll please God so I can do both things. And God says, no, it doesn't work this way. Secondly, you can see those are going, well, if I have to sacrifice, then I'm going to get some stakes out of it, Amen. Anyone? Are we Albertan or what? Come on. Right? You can, you can imagine what's going on, right? Hey, at least, uh, let's, I mean, we're not talking a culture that just has steak available at all time. So they're going, okay, well, if I have to sacrifice, then why don't I uh, at least get some steaks out of it? And God says, no, I don't want this to be about steak, as good as that is. <laughs> all the vegetarians and vegans in the room are just like, I don't know where this is going. Talk to me afterwards. We'll straighten it out. He says, no, you have to now take that bowl and you have to burn it. You have to burn it on the altar because this won't be about you getting a meal because you can see loophole Larry or loophole Susan or whatever you want, however, you know, equal opportunity, however you want to look at that. You can, you can see what, what, what they would do. And so this is where this burnt offerings thing comes from. And I can only imagine, like, have you ever smelled sizzling meat on the grill? Like, it's Super Bowl Sunday, so I don't think some, we have to stretch our imagination too bad. It smells pretty good, doesn't it? This is why there's this image throughout the Bible of the aroma of sacrifice to God. That's where that image comes from, because you'd be like, whoo, someone's sin's getting paid for today. That's what it would smell like. It was, it, was, it was a visceral feeling. Like you could walk by and be like, today is a day where people's sins are getting paid for. I mean, I kind of feel like this would be kind of cool to bring this back, eh? You know, have a big barbecue, call it the Day of Atonement. It'd be great. It'd be awesome. I'm kidding about that. Some of you got to wake up yet this morning. But this is where this idea of burnt offerings actually comes from. And what's the first thing that they do? The first thing that these people do is they offer burnt offerings. They build an altar before the temple was laid. They didn't wait. They couldn't wait. And what was that essentially about? That was saying, we want to get right with God as soon as we can. We've waited 70 years of dormant relationship with God, and we want to reinvigorate our spiritual lives So let's offer our burnt offerings, because that's the way we get in touch with God again. This is an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing. This isn't, this is showing us this, these people that are coming back are not simply coming back To reestablish their comfortable, cozy spiritual lives where they have a church where the music is perfect and everyone welcomes them and the coffee is awesome and everyone just, this is about going. We understand that at the end of the day, we need to get in touch with God again, we need to receive His grace. We need to have our sins forgiven and be put in right relationship with God. And if God establishes sacrifices for this purpose, then we will do it at all costs. If this is the way you make a living, this also meant economic sacrifice. I mean, if you have two cars and the system was... In order to get right with God, one of your cars has got to go and it's got to be your best one. You would feel it economically. It wouldn't just be like, oh, well, this is kind of a metaphorical sacrifice. No, it's a real sacrifice. It meant something to these people. And then they gave on top of that. What does that show us? That these people were perfect? That these people were sinless? No. So these people were humble. And they were saying, We don't have a relationship if God does not accept our sacrifices. God's not about just like do all the right things and do whatever I say so that I'll be happy with you. He He looks in and he sees our hearts. And in this we see that there's heart behind this. Important lesson for us. Important lesson for us as a church. We've talked a little bit about our mission. We bring this up every week. We have a service. We're talking about planting churches, doing this so that more people in Calgary have an opportunity. And as one person in our prayer time said this morning, it's easy to get distracted by what we do for God. By showing up, by being part of it, by serving, by giving, by, by setting our time out. And this reminds us that if we forget that this is ultimately about being right in relationship with God, then we have missed everything. That the mission does not come before relationship. The mission comes out of the relationship. Always. Only. Every time. This is so easy for me to see as a father now. When someone says to me, like, you know, do you love your kids because of what they do for you? I'm like, well, I kind of like what they do for me. I've got girls and, you know, my littlest one, her mantra was like, take care of your girls and your girls take care of you. I was like, oh, yeah. Did you hear that? It's good. There's an essence in which there's, but what is that about? Getting little servants in my house? No. They do it out of relationship. That's the best part. They do it willingly, that's the best part. They're like, hey dad, is there anything we can do for you? I'm like, I can't believe I get this, this is amazing. They don't forget that this is about relationship. I don't love them because of what they do for me, I love them because they're my kids, my girls. This is how God feels about us. He says don't get distracted by what you're doing for me to the point where you forget that I, I love you, you're my kids, that's what this is about. What's the mission about? More kids, more children. Today we're going to talk a little bit about what it means to be in right relationship with God. Because Jesus was very clear when He spoke about this. Very clear. There are lots of religious activities that we talked about fasting a couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago, I think. And some of the disciples, some of the people that were following were, were a little worried about Jesus' followers not doing all the religious activities, and they didn't fast, which was kind of a way of showing you you're focused. You had a relationship with God, and you were obedient to God. And as these other disciples, these religious people, the teachers of the law would say, hey, how come your disciples don't fast? And Jesus said, let me think about that for a moment fasting is about a relationship with me and they're in relationship with me so they don't need to fast because they have me. There will come a time when they don't have me in physical body. That's when they can fast because fasting is about a relationship. But right now, they don't need to fast. Not because they don't want to be obedient but because the point of fasting is a relationship. It's not about doing things for God. It's about being in relationship with God. Jesus was very clear about this. I'll give you a second point about that. Not only that, but how we get into relationship with the God is totally changed thanks to Jesus. This is why the gospel is good news The reason why I take the time to tell you about that sacrificial uh, uh, way sometimes is to get this visceral feeling in your heart that says, oh, I'm glad there's a new way. Oh, I'm really glad there's a new way. I'll put this in your mind. Can you imagine today's service? You don't get to come into the Kirby Center. You bring your sacrifice to Trev, and Trev, because he's gone through a lot of preparation, will take your sacrifice, have a good relationship with, uh, with God for you, And then I'll come out and tell you about how awesome it was. And then you go home thinking, oh, I got a little piece of God today. Can you imagine if that was the way it was? Don't you think it's better that you come in and we say simply, Jesus Christ is your sacrifice? You don't need a burnt offering anymore. You have a once and for all sacrifice. Jesus Christ, who hung on a cross, who was slaughtered like a lamb, it said, like a sacrificial lamb. That's what one of the preachers of God's word said. Jesus is the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Through faith we metaphorically place our hand on the forehead of Jesus and he takes it all away through one sacrifice. And because of that sacrifice, there is now access that's even greater than access of any priest in any temple anywhere. That is the gospel. Have you forgotten Have you forgotten that the veil has been ripped in half? There's no separation. God's made you a priest. That was last week even we talked about in Ezra. God's made, he hasn't just ripped the veil. He says your lineage no longer matters in terms of priest. You can be a priest. You are a priest. In fact, that's one of, Jesus' followers said that. You're now a kingdom of priests. You get to do stuff that no one has ever done before. That no one ever had access before. There's a new and living way. If you come here this morning thinking, what do I have to do to get in touch with God? The answer is, God has already gotten in touch with you. You might just be coming aware of it. There is nothing else for you to do for God in order to get close to him. He's made it available. What's your part, what's my part? Faith. We trust. Jesus, I believe this. I believe that you're my sacrifice. I repent, which means I turn from my way of thinking, which is all of the things that I do to get in touch with you, I turn. That's what the word repent means, 180 degree turnaround. I stop thinking that way and I turn my life around and I say, Jesus, I will take it. I will take your sacrifice. I will take it. I will receive it. Here's my life in return. And the writer of Romans actually says, now you become a living sacrifice. You say, I'm on, I'm on the altar now. My way of thinking is on the altar And I live the life that Jesus designs for me now. And so in essence, it's simple, but it's not easy. Because it means saying the way the world, the way the culture tells you how to live is out the window. Now you're worried about what Jesus says and how he instructs. The way you think what goes on in your heart, what defines what's wrong and what's right is now no longer based upon culture, the moving target of culture, might I add. Or what a good friend says, Generation Snowflake, what they're telling you. I love that phrase. It's perfectly descriptive of our culture. Generation Snowflake, here one minute and gone, not the next, but before you can even mention the word next. Not that culture, but Jesus, who becomes your Lord and he becomes your Savior. It's called the great exchange. You turn your life over to him. He gives you everything that he has earned through his sacrifice. Now this is something that unfortunately the people in Ezra would have given everything to hear. They did not have what we have. In fact, I believe that some of those people are in heaven right now listening to this and going, oh, wouldn't have that been so sweet if we would have known that? Then... I hope those people understand how valuable this is. Listen to Ephesians 5. that talks very carefully about Jesus Christ himself. And this is what it says. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, 1 and 2. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Yes, there are imperatives, thing to do. But listen to this. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Do you know now why that's such an important phrase? Does that make sense? It's like roasted meat to God. It's the smell of barbecue. That's what it smells like. If you're a meat eater... That's one of the best things in the world, right? That just that fragrance. That's what Jesus is for us. And what Jesus asks then is now on the basis of this, not I'm not asking you to do something for me. I'm saying, in light of this, reflect me in everything that you do. Your mission is to now reveal this God to your culture, to your city, to your family, to those who don't know, to those who don't understand. And so when something, when people say, hey, there's something different about you, you don't go, oh yeah, well, I go to church. You go, I am changed. There's no sacrifice anymore. I'm a fragrant offering for the most holy God. I mean, they're going to look at you weird. Sure. But they might ask you a few questions like, what are you talking about? Well, there was this old way, you say. And that old way is gone, thanks to Jesus. Now you know why he's so important to me and why he's not a swear word. He is my savior. He is my hope. He is my eternal salvation. He is my eternal security. Everything that I do matters to Jesus. The last part, I'm not going to spend as much time on this, don't worry, is that you see the people respond. I'm not going to focus in on this very long because I think the application for us is simply this. When you look at what's happening, you see this time span in between these two things, the rebuilding of the altar, the re-understanding of the sacrifice that we now know is basically a pattern of the gospel itself, explains the gospel itself, to the, just the laying of the foundation. So the cribbers have showed up. For those who are not construction, these are the guys who sit in the trench and they pour cement in the ice cold weather. They build those plywood structures that you pour cement into. It's a thankless job that they make a killing on, by the way. But it's a thankless job. Nobody pays attention to it until the building's out of whack. That's it. That's all that showed up. The cribbers showed up and they poured the cement. And that's when they had a celebration. The work was not over. In fact, I left out some of the verses that some of the scholars included in chapter 4, which is immediately they had opposition. And you see that a little bit in the text. And I will refer to that in a couple weeks is that they were scared of what this meant. So if you're saying, I don't know, this this is going to look weird. Like, people are going to not agree with this. And people are going to say, what do those weirdos really believe? That's what they were scared of in chapter 3. And that's what they ultimately faced as opposition in chapter 4. It's coming. Opposition's coming. And as the foundation of the temple is laid, there's a celebration because it's the start of something. It's the start of something. It's not the finish. It's not even the halfway point. The work actually stops for quite a lengthy period, quite a discouraging period. Almost as long as they were in exile, the work stops because of discouragement. And there are some that respond with joy. And they say, God has returned. God is with us again. God is doing a new thing. And then there were others with their hands in their pockets who were said, yeah, oh, it's just not as good as it used to be. This happens, by the way, in churches too, all the time. Some of you are smiling because you've been part of a church that's experienced this. These are the people who go, I miss the good old days. You ever find yourself doing that? Ah, I miss those good old days when our church was small. and We had this in our church. It was hilarious, right? When there was 25 of us, we were all like, oh, this is a disaster. We've got to have more people in here. This thing is never going anywhere. And then we grew to about 70 people. And there were the same 25 people that are going, oh, I miss the good old days when there was only 25 of us. And we all knew each other. And we all stayed at each other's places. And, you know, the same group that met on Sunday was the same group that set up on Sunday. And it was like like six months ago. It's so easy for us to get into that habit. So easy for us facing what we're facing in today's culture and world. The uncertainty that's going on around us. The fear mongering that's going on around us. That not everything is as it appears. That not everything around us is as secure as we thought it once was. That there is no such thing anymore as ultimate safety. That as we face that, it's so easy for us to either go, oh, I wish we could have those days when everybody was a Christian. Oh, wouldn't it be great to go back to the early days of Canada where it's built on the foundations of Christianity and get discouraged and be the weeping ones in the text instead of the ones who are saying, look, God has returned. He's doing a new thing. And Haggai and Zechariah, this is what these books are about. I want to quickly read those. I don't have a lot of time. But in Haggai, there's a message. It says, who is left among you who saw this house in his former glory? It's basically some old guys, right? Coffee Row, who's sitting there discussing how it used to be awesome. How do you see it now? Is it as nothing in your eyes? The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. The king of the universe says, you thought it was good then. There's coming a day where there's no need for a temple. We got Jesus. Nobody can destroy him. You would rebuild the temple, destroy it. Rebuild the temple, destroy it. And your spiritual life will go up and down on the basis of that. But there is a day coming when it's going to be so awesome that you can't destroy it. Because God said, I will build my church in what? Nothing can destroy it. That church being Jesus Christ. This is the great hope of Christianity. Is that as we face these things, we have an opportunity to believe that God is doing a new thing in our country, in our church, in our city. And that even this tiny little church can actually have an impact on the kingdom of God that your part to play in this can actually be something that someday people will point back to and go, I am so thankful for the few faithful people at Urban Grace who decided it was not more important to stay cool but to stay faithful to God and because of them, we now have millions of Christians who are now God's children who can worship him properly. Now, I put it out to you. What's it gonna be? What's your response? Are you bent toward discouragement? The way it used to be, the glory days? Or will you believe in faith that because Jesus Christ is an unstoppable power who will not be destroyed or taken away, our future can be better than our past? So I'll invite the band I'll invite the band, and here's our chance to simply respond, to simply respond, not audibly, but internally, as we partake in the family meal. We call it the Eucharist, communion, Lord's Supper, Lord's Table, whatever you prefer, I want you to think about this question, Jesus, what's my response here? What's my part to play? And if it's discouragement or frustration and being like, Jesus, I know the way I'm bent, then this is an opportunity for you to repent and to simply say, Jesus, I'm sorry for not believing you at your word and thinking that the future can be better than my past. This applies individually as well, by the way. It's not just a communal application. And you can be reminded that this is only, you can only even ask that question because first and foremost, Jesus decided that it was not good enough for you and I simply to offer a burnt offering. He said, I want to establish a sacrifice that once and for all, through faith, people can believe and it's over. You can access God in a unique way Because of Jesus Christ. Why do we celebrate this each week? Because I'm forgetful, you're forgetful, I'm sinful, you're sinful. Every week, at the minimum, we need a reminder that said, it's not my thing, it's not what I do for you, God, it's what you have done for me. That's symbolized in the cup, the shed blood, the sacrificially shed blood of Jesus Christ bread symbolizing it wasn't just a spiritual sacrifice. It was a physical body sacrifice. He died for me and for you so that we could respond in faith. So take the time to meditate on these things as we respond with songs.